0: Uh, If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4, be looking at verses 32 through 37 uh, this morning for the message. Uh, If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word. Pay careful attention, this is God's Word. Acts 4 beginning in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles' testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them, And bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds to receive your word with faith. We pray that we would not be like the road beside the field upon which the seed was scattered and immediately snatched up by the birds, but we pray that you would make, by your Holy Spirit, our hearts to be good soil, to receive the seed of your word and to bear fruit from it, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that in all things we would see and exalt Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, All of you, whether you like it or not, are familiar with progress reports. If you're in school, you get a progress report about halfway through your nine weeks. Uh, of school ahead of your report card, and you, you get the general idea of the progress report. It's meant to tell you how you're doing. Uh, and in some cases, if you're not doing well, it gives you an opportunity to improve before the report card comes along, to raise your grade up, to seek some extra credit, perhaps, to, to um, build your skills in areas where you are lacking. In the book of Acts, uh, Luke, who wrote it, gives us several progress reports. Along the way, they're kind of scattered throughout the book as he outlines uh, the way in which the church continued to grow as the gospel spread, as the word of God was proclaimed and as people came to faith in Jesus Christ. He gives us progress reports. Uh, Many of these highlight the growth of the church. It'll say things like the word of God multiplied, the word of God grew and then describe people who came to faith through the witness of the church. Some of those progress reports present conflicts, troubles that arose within the church as as they learned to live together as God's people. And so it shows us conflicts and often, very often, the resolution to those conflicts. And in many places, like our passage today, Luke provides not only uh, a highlight of the growth of the church, but in particular, an example of an aspect of the life of the church that's meant to be a model. For us, a model for how we ought to be, how we ought to live as the people of Jesus Christ. The specific focus of this passage is on the unity of God's people, a unity established by the grace of the risen Lord Jesus, a unity that is shaped by that grace as well. And it's a unity that was compelling in its witness to the world around the early church and one which ought to still be compelling today as we seek to live for Christ in this world. And so as we look at this passage, let's ask what does that unity look like uh, and, and what does that mean for us today? As we look at the unity of God's people in this passage, we see three particular characteristics. First, we see a unity of heart heart and soul, a unity of heart and soul. Notice verse 32, as Luke describes the church there, the congregation of those who believed, he said, were of one heart and soul. There was a unity of heart and soul. This expression describes a deepness of relationship, a deepness of friendship, one that goes deeper and beyond external similarities Uh, external commonalities, shared interests, those, those often form the basis of our relationships with friends and so forth, just things that we share with one another. But there was a deepness here, a unity, as he says, of heart and soul, a deeper unity rooted in their shared union with Christ. This is why the church is most often described in ways that emphasize the many belonging to the one, the body of Christ. The church is described as the body of Christ. There's one body, but there's many members, and those members all serve diverse functions, and they all serve those functions for the common good, for the one body. There's diversity within the unity. There's a deep union because of their belonging to Jesus. The church is described as the temple made up of living stones. Lots of stones, but one temple, and the presence of God dwelling among the one people of God. Because we are united to Christ, this verse is teaching us, we also are united to all those who belong to Jesus. We belong to him, therefore we belong to one another. They shared a deep unity of heart and soul. You think about how uh, different this is than much of what we see in the world. The world, and we often with it, judge by outward appearance. We we make evaluations of people based on their virtue signaling or their buzzwords or what tribe or faction they belong to or even maybe what sports team they support during the season. We, we judge by outward appearance appearances. And oftentimes we make our decisions about relationships and friendships based on those outward appearances and the judgments that we make on them. Not always, but, but we do that. The world does that. And yet here we see in this description of the early church that the church of Jesus is meant to be a place that transcends all of those divisions, transcends all of those differences that we often have with one another. Because for the church of Jesus Christ, The center of gravity that draws us in is not us, but Jesus. And if we belong to Jesus, then we belong to one another. And you see this unity in the early church as they had a unity of heart and soul. If you belong to Jesus, if we belong to Jesus, then we share something deeper with other Christians than even that which we share with non-believing Christians blood relatives. It's a deeper unity, uh, deeper even than family relationships. There's a unity that is a deep relationship and friendship rooted in our union with Christ. There's also a unity of purpose among them. They were called to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were all bound together in this great mission that Jesus had entrusted to his people to go forth to proclaim forgiveness of sins in his name and to declare witness that he had risen from the dead. They had a unity in purpose. But notice that this unity that's described, this unity of heart and soul is not just spiritual, but it's also one that is demonstrated in practice. Notice again verse 32. Those who believe are one of, of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. They had a unity of heart and soul. They also had a shared commitment to meet each other's needs, a shared commitment to meet each other's needs. Let's talk a little bit about what this doesn't mean and what it does mean. This is one of those passages that can often be a source of confusion for us. Let's talk about what this doesn't mean. Uh, First of all, this passage is not giving us some sort of external compulsion that you have to go sell everything that you have and bring it to the church. That's not what's going on here. They are voluntarily, those who had means, those who had things to give up to sell, uh, who, who had more than they needed, if you will, they were voluntarily giving those things up, selling them, and then taking the proceeds and bringing it to the church so that it might be used to meet the needs of others as they had need, was, this was not an external compulsion. There was no law in the early church demanding that if you had more fields than you used, that you had to give them up for the sake of others. It's a voluntary sacrifice. It's a decision made from the heart, an overflowing response to the love of God. And the unity that they shared with one another in the body of Christ. So it's not an external compulsion. There's no law that requires you to do this. It was a voluntary act. It's also, we might say, it's not a picture of uh, what you might call proto-communism. There are often people who look at passages like this and say, look... Uh, The New Testament advocates that we all be communists because when they were in the early church, they didn't have common property. They didn't have private property, rather. It was all common uh, to the whole group. Uh, But there is a difference between communism, if you will, and what we see in this passage here. Communism, in essence, says, what's yours is mine. But Christian generosity says... What's mine belongs to you. You see, what's going on here in this life of the early church as they generously and sacrificially were committed to meeting one another's needs as they shared this unity, what's going on here is that God's grace had changed the very way that they thought about their possessions and their livelihood. This is God's economy. In God's economy, my needs are met by you, and our needs are met by one another, if you will, that all of us contribute to the common good with the gifts that God has given us. Deuteronomy 15.4 is in some ways fulfilled here, where the Lord promises there that there will be no poor among you. How can God say that? It's not because poverty was eradicated and there was never anyone who had need. Rather, he can say that about his people because he had chosen to provide for his people through the generosity of others. We do not have all that we need in ourselves, but God provides for the needs of his people through the body of Christ. This reminded me of an incident about uh, 18 years ago, shortly after... uh, Karis was born. There was a massive snowstorm. Uh, This was probably the last time we've had significant snow like this, as far as I can remember. This is 2004, uh, about the end of February of that year. And I think in Rock Hill, where we were living, we got about 22 inches of snow. And I was driving at the time a two-door Honda Civic, which does not uh, do well in that type of environment. And our, our, our cars were just completely covered with snow, as you can imagine. And we lived in an apartment building in Rock Hill, and the parking lot was uh, behind the apartment. And I thought, if I need to get out for any reason, I, don't, I didn't have any reason to get out, but I just thought, if I need to get out and go get something, I can't do anything. My car is simply stuck. So I called a tow truck and just said, can you come pull my car out from my parking lot? It's, it's stuck. So this tow truck comes down uh, into the neighborhood where, we, where our apartment was, and he starts to pull into the driveway, and he realizes that his truck is too heavy. He's going to sink if he tries to drive on this uh, ground that's now just saturated with all of this melting snow. Or it wasn't melting at that point. It was still there. But he, he knew he couldn't do it. So he, he said, see you later, good luck, and he took off. Oh, Thanks. I didn't have to pay him, which was good. Uh, so I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So uh, somehow or another, I called, I think I called Wallace and explained the situation. And about half an hour later, uh, Brandon Dees and Everett Tinsley showed up at my house. They were driving a truck, so they were fine. And they brought with them like, you know, flat pieces of cardboard and shovels, and they just got to work just shoveling out all the snow from underneath my car and putting the cardboard underneath the wheels. They were Eagle Scouts, so they knew how to do stuff that I had no clue about, and they got my car out. Uh, It was packed under snow, but they moved it, and they got it out so that I could get out if I needed to. I had needs that I couldn't meet, but two brothers showed up uh, from the body of Christ who knew how to do that kind of thing. It's a simple, it's, a, it's a, almost a trivial thing, but it meant so much to me because somebody had shown up to do something that I couldn't do for myself. Part of what Luke is telling us in this story in the book of Acts is that that is the normal way in which the church ought to be operating. That, that unity that we share in Jesus Christ is meant to be expressed in this shared commitment to meet one another's needs. You might ask, why is that the case? Why is that the thing that Luke highlights in this part of God's Word? And I would uh, commend to you this thought, that this is a response to God's grace, that God's grace in Jesus Christ frees us from putting trust in our things, or in our abilities, or clinging tightly to what we have and what we can do, as though it's simply meant for ourselves. Because what we have in the gospel is the self-giving love of God in Jesus Christ to those of us who are in the most need spiritually. The Bible says that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and transgressions that we live in hostility to the living God because of our sin, and that because of that, there's nothing that I can do or that you can do on your own to rectify that situation, to remove on your own the hostility and the enmity that exists between us and God. You cannot deal with the problem of your sin on your own. But God has promised to do it, and he has. In Jesus Christ, because in Christ, God gives the very thing that he requires of us that we could not do for ourselves. In Jesus, we have righteousness. Your record, my record, is not righteous. We have, we have sin abounding in our thoughts, our motives, our actions, our words. We are overflowing with sin and corruption. And yet Jesus is perfect for us. And in the gospel, we have righteousness from Jesus. He covers over us with his righteousness. In the gospel, we have the penalty for our sin paid in full at the cross. Jesus gives himself for you. Gave himself up on the cross and bore in his flesh the penalty for our sin so that it would be taken away, removed from us, no longer hanging over our heads. This is grace. God gives us all that we need in Jesus Christ. And if you've known that self-giving love of God in Christ, if you've received from Jesus all that you need for life and life eternal, then it frees you to give to others as they have needs as well. It changes the way you view your possessions, your livelihood, so that you no longer view it as just for yourself, but is for the benefit of others. Because that is how Jesus acted. He came not for himself, but for the benefit of us, of all those who would believe in his name. We have riches untold in Jesus Christ. And we are called, therefore, to live with open hands, viewing our possessions, our gifts, our graces, not as just for our benefits, but for our benefit, but for the benefit of Of others, I want you to see as well, uh, obviously, Luke highlights the example of Barnabas, who is prominent in the rest of the book of Acts as a companion of Paul, uh, for the most part. He highlights Barnabas. Barnabas had some wealth, uh, sold some of his land and field, not all of it. He wasn't required to do any of it, but he gave voluntarily. He sold it and gave the proceeds to the church so that it'd be distributed to any as they had need what i want you to see that this is that this shared commitment comes right out of the message of the gospel that god's grace not only established this community and the unity that they shared but it also shaped them to be a community that was committed to meeting one another's needs with whatever they were able to do and you see this in luke's comment that the apostles in verse 33 The apostles with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And then verse 34 goes on to describe what that abundant grace looked like. It looked like meeting one another's needs. There is a connection, if you will, between the grace of God and Jesus Christ and our commitment to meet one another's needs that the message itself ought to produce that voluntary response of looking to one another and serving one another with whatever the Lord has provided for us. Isn't it interesting that the same message that brings salvation, that brings people to faith, that provides forgiveness of sins and eternal hope, that it's that same message that also produces generosity in the people of God. Peter and the other apostles were not engaged in a stewardship series. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm just pointing out the fact here. They were simply preaching the good news of what Jesus had done, and the response of the people was to meet the needs of others. And that witness in practice. Was joined with the witness of the message in a powerful way. And that is, in large part, I think, what made the early church and what continues to make the church such a compelling witness. That we don't simply affirm truths, those truths shape our lives. They produce humility, they produce grief over sin the ability to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, the truths of God's grace in Jesus Christ produce in us a generosity that confirms the generous love of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And isn't that, among other things, what the world needs to see from the church? If you, if you look about yourself and the world today, what do we see? You probably know what I'm going to say because I feel like I say it all the time. You see division. You see hatred, one group of another. You see backbiting. You see all kinds of things that, that we never want to be victim to. You see a world in deep need of the grace of God. Very often, the church mirrors what's going on in the world. And it ought not be so. Rather, we're to emulate what we find in the scriptures, a community established by God's grace, a community shaped by grace, united in heart and soul, a unity that transcends whatever other differences may divide us otherwise, a unity rooted in Jesus Christ and his gospel and our union with him. And a unity that compels us in voluntary ways, if you will, to give to one another in our times of need, to be generous and committing to meeting one another's needs in a way that demonstrates the generous and gracious love of God for us in Jesus Christ. I think there are probably many who would view the Church of Jesus Christ at Filbert and in other churches in our community. And when they see that kind of mutual love that the body of Christ has for one another, that is often more powerful and more memorable than the things that we say. Though what we say matters greatly, it must be joined with the demonstration of love in the same way that we see it demonstrated in this part of Acts. And so may the Lord give us not only unity in our message witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus and the gospel of grace in him, but also a unity that transcends all the other things that divide people in the world. May we be united in Christ, and may we live out that unity with a shared commitment to meet one another's needs in such a way that we not only can declare, but demonstrate the love of Christ given to us in the gospel. Would you pray?